Welcome to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. We just came back from a riveting trip overseas where we were in Rome, London, Tel Aviv, and all over the places that are being affected by American Middle East policy the most. Not so much being worried about how the Europeans are looking at this angle or how the Israelis are starting to, starting to be concerned about their election prospects about 26 days from today, but more on how American policy is affecting those who we are allied with in the region and those who we are fighting. We have an exciting program today, being joined by Benjamin Baird, a senior fellow at Islamist Watch, and also a very special guest coming directly from Tel Aviv University. But before we begin, I thought I would talk a little bit more about the conclusions and some of the observations that I was able to encounter when I was overseas. For those of you who don't know, I spent about 10 years living in Israel from 2004 until 2013, on and off here and there through some of those years, but through the better part of my 20s. Having lived there, I experienced four different conflicts, looking at the Lebanon War in 2006, Operation Cast Lead, which was a fight between Hamas and Gaza and the Israeli Defense Forces in 2008 and 2009. Operation Pillar of the Fence, which took place in 2012, and observing from afar but having many friends who I served with, and Operation Protective Edge, which took place in 2014. Many good men died during these battles. Friends, including local Michael Levin, a member of the youth group that I grew up with here in Bucks County, north of Philadelphia. Others, like Sean Carmelli of Los Angeles, a few other Americans, but dozens of Israelis, and even some who had volunteered from overseas, like those in Russia, France, the United Kingdom, and Australia. Not to mention the thousands of casualties which took place on the Palestinian side. But the tables which have ever so been against the Israeli government and its army and its people, where there have been 22 different Arab states at one time or another, in different states of war against Israel. And even non-state actors, like the Hamas, Islamic Jihad, Fatah, a secular kleptocratic party ruling over the West Bank, Hezbollah in Lebanon, which is becoming more and more part of this state, rather than just a terror organization. And even the dictatorship under Bashar al-Assad, formerly his father, Hafez al-Assad, and different movements, with only two countries, Egypt and Jordan, being able to reach a peace agreement with Israel. You would think that after 70 years of conflict, there would have been some advancement between Israel and her neighbors. Now, looking at it from the personal side of having seen the rockets fall in Israeli city centers, and the artillery and tanks and infantry going into Lebanon and Gaza, at least watching from the local news and sometimes watching very up close, versus the other situation where you have indiscriminate attacks against Israeli civilian targets falling on, like I said beforehand, Israeli city centers, that year after year, you would think there would be a way to be able to evolve from this current detente of violence, or not even detente, this similarly cycle of bloodshed, which year after year continues to repeat itself. And now, and as we've talked about on this program in the past, we've seen that while the actors which are directly involved in the kinetic action, 
that takes place in the region feel it the most. There are different angles and different actors outside of the region which always have to opine regarding their opinions on the roots of the conflict and why it continues to move forward rather than to subside. Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Andre Carson, other members of the House of Representatives, including our very own Dwight Evans here in Philadelphia, who is an original co-sponsor of a piece of legislation which seeks to address a one-sided conclusion to the conflict. And on the pro-Israel side, American evangelicals, American conservatives, and also APAC. And we find ourselves right now on the precipice of a convention which will be taking place between March 24th and March 26th, where over 18,000 pro-Israel advocates will be joining us in Washington, D.C. for the pro-Israel event of the year. And several questions are going to be asked by these activists of both Republicans and Democrats. Now, we, as we were saying beforehand, are on the precipice of a major peace deal announcement coming out of the White House after the April 9th Knesset elections. But when we find ourselves at the juncture of having the biggest pro-Israel event of the year in Washington, D.C., representatives of every Israeli major political party in town, we have the heightened tensions of rockets falling on Tel Aviv, We have attacks in the last 36 hours leading to the deaths of two Israelis and three Palestinians. And we have a certain amount of uncertainty, a certain amount of uncertainty, which is coming out of the relationship. What will happen at this confab this weekend in Washington, D.C.? We're going to be able to ask a few individuals about this opinion and also this program, which will be on this show later today. Both David Reboy of the Security Studies Group, who will be joining us at 1010, and also a special guest, if I'm still able to secure them, at 1030. But going back to the questions that the Democrats and Republicans are going to be asked at APAC, let's go over actually what happens at this convention And then I'll try to illustrate to you why it's so important to focus on both the pro-Israel side, the anti-Israel side, both here in the United States and overseas. On Saturday evening, as these 18,000 activists transcend and come to Washington, D.C., on Sunday, you have dozens of panels which will be addressing the most important issues facing the U.S.-Israel alliance. What's going on with the state of pro-Israel advocacy today? Who are those that are the new allies of Israel in the United States? And also, what's going on to maintain historical alliances? What's happening with the Nascent and Nadir between Israel and the Arab states in the region? Who are the threats to both the United States and the Middle East and Israel a little bit closer to their home? What's going on with technology, business, finance, startups, entrepreneurship, and the different areas that Israel is well known for around the globe. And on the other side, how does this body address 
alleged human rights abuses by Israel, which if we look at the report that came out of the United Nations Human Rights Council, that's sort of a, of a moniker or, or a false uh, crescendo of ideas that are coming out of that named body where you have a council of dictatorships, Venezuela, Syria, Iran, Cuba, Libya, and many others, which I think any normal individual educated person would be able to see that a council comprising dictators cannot be a human rights council, cannot be trusted to define what is human rights. But how does the pro-Israel community in the United States address these challenges? And getting back to those questions to our politicians, how will Republicans address the U.S.-Israel alliance with the Trump peace plan, with these challenges coming forward, by seeing the growing anti-Semitism in the opposition party. And on the Democrat side, these activists will ask their members of Congress, members of the House, members of the Senate, and potential 2020 Democratic presidential candidates, what are they doing to address the same issues? And more so, what is their vision for the U.S.-Israel alliance. It's pretty clear on the Republican side that they want to maintain a strong relationship. But on the Democrat side, you have a split in the party. Those who are the traditional Jacksonian Democrats from Scoop Jackson, who want to see a strong relationship, and those as we referred to before, the Tlaib omar Carson alliance, that seek to break the chains of our alliance and move to unchartered territories. After these messages, David Reboy. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in, from Morocco to Iran. From Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all. The few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB, Philadelphia 860 AM Talk. A new film premiering this week called Blood Money details how Qatar funds and promotes sympathetic voices to advance its agenda in Washington at the expense of the U.S. and our allies both here at home and abroad. Blood Money focuses on how foreign money corrupts more than just the decision-making process inside the Beltway, but more than that, 
the film explains how the foreign influence game works. It is compelling, challenging, entertaining, and expertly crafted. And I recommend everyone who's listening right now to go on YouTube and to look up Blood Money and to see this film. We're joined by one of the two stars of the movie, David Reboy from the Security Studies Group, and you'll also be able to find Michael Waller, a professor of political warfare on the program. David, welcome back. Thanks, Greg. Great to be here. So, David, tell us a little bit about a synopsis of Blood Money. How did you get involved with the film, and what are you going to be talking about when we see it? Sure. I, uh, I got a call to, if, you know, uh, asking if I would appear in the film uh, about Qatari influence, and I said, absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll go anywhere to discuss the subject. And, um, and you know, so we, we made the film. And uh, folks came over to, uh, to, to my house, and, and we had a kind of wide-ranging discussion about, um, uh, about the, uh, the length that uh, Qatar goes to uh, to, uh, to advance its, its kind of national security uh, and national interest in, uh, in Washington. And I think they do it a lot more successfully than a lot of, uh, a lot of other folks. Um, we, we have this idea in... Um, in, in America that, you know, we kind of know how, how the, the, the game works. You know, a foreign country would go and they would, um, and they would uh, hire lobbyists, so they would hire media people and things like that to, to, to spread their message or to, um, or to, uh, or to uh, open the doors to members of Congress or policymakers or someone like that at a, at a very kind of elite level. Uh, what Qatar does, though, which... Um, which almost nobody does as successfully. I, I, I can't think of anyone. Is uh, is they build the infrastructure around um, uh, they build the infrastructure around uh, the 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 policy goals that they want to advance. So, for example, uh, they will make sure that everyone in the media is uh, is covering stories that are advancing their interests and going after their enemies. And that's another big thing. I mean, Qatar's enemies. I mean, we we can see. I mean, it doesn't take uh, uh, even even uh, even the blind can see that uh, that uh, the the U.S. media has a uh, a real vendetta against Saudi Arabia uh, over the last year, especially. Um, we see that almost every day there's there's a, a, a negative, damaging story coming out about the Saudis, and you know, it just so happens that the Saudis are um, <clears throat> are, are Qatar's uh, regional rival. So walk, walk me through this for a second. Yeah. You have a regional rivalry going on between Saudi Arabia, some other Gulf Arab countries, and Qatar. But we find that there's a proxy war going on here in the United States. Exactly how does the Qatar propaganda machine work, and why should we be concerned about it? Sure. So, so um, I mean, it, it works in many ways, but let's just pick one. Let's just pick, you know, for example, a, a subject that, that, uh, that you and your listeners may be familiar with. Um, the, for example, the, um, you know, the U.S. Israel supporting Jewish community, um, Qatar will go and as they have done, they will, um, they will contact, um, you know, a lobbyist, like, let's say, uh, let's say Nick Muzzin, um, at Stoning, Stonington Strategies. And, um, you know, he's very well connected to, uh, to pro-Israel, pro-Republican, uh, politicians and organizations and things like that. 
and you know, and he and uh, Qatar will pay him millions and millions of dollars in order to um, in order to spread the message. And what it does is is you know, once you get a whole lot of people on the payroll, um, you know, uh, uh, someone who's not necessarily in the community will will look. At someone like uh, like like Muzzin or or Mort Klein or someone like that from Zionist Organization of America with sort of impeccable pro-Israel credentials, and they'll say, "Oh wow, well if Qatar is okay for these guys, then Qatar must be okay." Well, that's a really cynical game because at the same time, Qatar is funding Hamas, Qatar is funding the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, so what it's what it's doing, which is really insidious, is it's it's making um, um, it's it's sort of uh, destroying the most uh, you know the, the people who we should be um, you know the, the most principled people. Um, it's taking them out of play and putting them on the other side. So so a lot of these people, I mean, yes, it's Qatar's fault, but but for a lot of these people, they shouldn't have done it in the first place. They should have never taken uh, um, uh, Qatar's blood money because that's you know it's blood money because. It goes to fund the Muslim Brotherhood in Hamas, um, and and there are no two ways about it. Uh, so um, so it's a it's 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 a simple story, but it's but it's complicated in uh, in its its details. And and I think the film really kind of wonderfully captures um, all of this. And um, and you're you're left with uh, you're left with the feeling that um, I, I think you're left with information. At, at the end of the day, and and a new a new prism through which to see a lot of the a lot of the news stories um, and uh, that um, that you see on a daily basis, and you just maybe now you can read the stitches on the fastball. I think after seeing this film, so we have a new prism, a new perspective on how to see what we think is regular news on a daily basis, but there might be something more pernicious behind it. So, you you've been able to articulate how you're intending to educate Americans about this threat. How can we fight back against the Qatari and the wider foreign influence machine? Well, I think the, f- the first thing um, the first thing that we should be doing is uh, is uh, is all foreign media outlets. Um, I mean, we we have this as a part of the uh, the National Defense Authorization uh, Act, which is that all foreign media outlets need to kind of file with uh, with the uh, with the FCC. Um, and and uh, and they're not doing that. I mean, right now Al Jazeera has has not done that. We had a couple, you know, a, a, a little Turkish station somewhere file, and uh, and uh, but uh, but Al Jazeera has not. Al Jazeera is owned, you know, lock, stock, and barrel by the Qatari state, and whatever you see on there is reflective of their, you know, foreign ministry's priorities. And it would be the same thing as um, as RT, as Russia Today. Uh, RT gets a lot of um, uh, gets a lot of criticism, rightly so, for being a uh, you know a propaganda outlet. But um, but uh, the same standard doesn't apply on in uh, in, in media to uh, to Al Jazeera. For example, Mehdi Hassan, who works for Al Jazeera, who may as well be as much of a of a government spokesman as Kellyanne Conway or Sarah Sanders, you know, he just works for Qatar. He's been all over TV. He was on CNN. He was on MSNBC talking about uh, the, uh, the, the, the terror attack in, in New Zealand. And, um, 
you know, and a lot of these American media voices want to present him because, you know, they think he has credibility. You know, he's, he's, he's a, a, an articulate, foreign-born um, uh, uh, English Muslim who, uh, who can, you know, who, who can really go after Trump and, and conservatives in a biting way and call them racists and white supremacists. And that's why he's on TV. But he's also advancing the, um, you know, he's advancing the, uh, the narrative of, uh, of the Qataris. But, you know, this is not disclosed. So there are many different ways in which, um, in which the uh, Qatari narratives and, uh, and sort of information warfare get uh get seeded into uh into americans consciousness just for our listeners who like the uh, policy wonk side of things the relevant section that david's talking about is hr 5515 section 1085 that's hr 5515 section 1085 also titled the disclosure requirements for united states based foreign media outlets requiring foreign media outlets to file a report every six months with data about their structure and finances, making the report public 30 days later. And, and David, it's, it's important that you bring this subject up because besides the individuals who pontificate on Al Jazeera, which are available to American viewers, whether it be online on Al Jazeera English, AJ+, Plus, which is on social media, we find that Al Jazeera has surpassed over 1 billion views on YouTube and has over 10 million followers on Facebook. Their bureau operates, their U.S. operation has bureaus in Washington, New York, Chicago, Miami, Los Angeles, and even according to the Congressional Directory, there were 175 Al Jazeera staffers credentialed by the House and the Senate in 2016. Now, let's compare that to American outlets. The New York Times only had 43, and the Washington Post, the hometown newspaper, had 111. So, in this case... We have, as you correctly pointed out, a foreign influence machine, which is using its state-owned broadcaster to have more than the Washington Post and New York Times represented on the Hill together, and they're not reporting their foreign agent activity like they're according to, like they're supposed to, according to U.S. law. And, and that's a great example about how they are able to control the information game, at least from their perspective. What's well, going right? It's, it's even it's 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 even worse than that. I mean, if we were talking in 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 2010 about this, it would be a problem, and we'd be saying the same thing. But it's uh, it's uh, it's 2019, and we've got um, you know, we've just been through several years of me- complete media freakout hysteria about foreign influence. Um, we've, we've, had, we've had screaming headlines of uh, Russian Facebook ads totaling about $100,000 swinging the election. So, um, you know, I mean, all this stuff is chump change compared to the numbers that you just laid out for Al Jazeera. And, uh, and I mean, there's, there's a giant disconnect here. There's a giant disconnect here, and nobody wants to to look at the the uh, the elephant in the room. I think if uh, you know, maybe if uh, if, um, uh, if if Putin wants the um, wants a lot of Democrats to uh, to to stop talking about uh, you know his his foreign influence, he should just buy some ads on CNN, <laughs> like Qatar has. I think that one of the things that we might want to do here is open up this subject to listeners. If you are on air listening to us. 
here at WWDB, you can call in at 1-888-329-3306. You can join me, Greg Roman, and David Reboy, our guest, at 1-888-329-3306. David, I want to pivot for a second to the domestic issues that are going on here in the United States, and we're going to get back to that right after these messages. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at meforum. The Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff. But still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. We're joined by David Reboy, one of the two main narrators and analysts presented in a film coming out this week focused on Qatar's influence operation here in the United States and in Washington, D.C. And David, we have a treat for our listeners we're now going okay. to play the trailer, and we're, we're going to try to tee this up from YouTube so that it goes on air, where we highlight the Minute 30 clip that we have available to our audience. And we'll tune into that now. is all around us. More than a dozen prominent Washington research groups have received tens of millions of dollars from foreign governments in recent years. We all see it every day. Many of us repeat it every day, and we don't even realize it. Washington becomes a playground for foreign interests, and the interest of the United States citizen gets gets kind of lost in this. Uh, Qatar is excellent at playing the game. We fund think tanks to put out policy papers that support what you want, and then you fund law firms to sue people you don't like. There's pay-to-play journalism huge amount of foreign-funded news and commentary that we all take in as real thoughts and real news coming from real American citizens. The nation of Qatar has historically been a funder of terrorism. Qatar has been a patron of the Muslim Brotherhood and Islamist movement. Qatar funds Hamas. They sponsor the Taliban. Spent an untold amount of money in D.C. funding media operations, hiring lobbyists. They've been tremendously successful. Foreign funding of American government decision-making. It corrupts our democracy. (laughs) 
Well, David, that's uh, quite the film preview that we have there. Uh, and I think that we heard from your other uh, co-star on the film, uh, Mike, who is the uh, professor of political warfare. But uh, while we're waiting for calls to come, and I do want to take a second to transition to some domestic political issues, it's always nice to hear from someone inside the Beltway what they have uh, on, on their mind as it regards to one of my favorite topics, which is Islamism and politics here in the United States. Now, uh, I know that you've been very, very vocal on Twitter, on social media, and also on air and in your writing about the influence of Islamist political activity in Washington, D.C., and what it means for our democratic political process. What's your take on uh, Omar and the democratic split on Israel? Well, I think it's been a long time coming. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's obviously unfortunate, but, um, but we saw, um, I think we saw hints of, of these things to come. Um, heck, we saw hints of these things to come 30 years ago um, or more. Um, we, we, when um, when we saw a, a, a split between the, the you know far left uh, at um, you know the the, the Chomskyite um, far left uh, that uh, that started to uh, to despise Israel coincidentally uh, right when the Soviets did after 1967 and it's a it's it's uh, it's an idea that has picked up steam ever since then it was you know they the um, the, the far left kind of immediately bought into a, um, a, a very strong anti-colonial narrative. And, um, you know, it just so happened that, that, uh, that, that the, uh, the Soviet Union's enemies um, were the enemies of, um, you know, became the enemies of the, uh, of, the, of the far left. Now, fast forward to um, around the time of the Obama administration, I think, I think actually before that, before that was, was a very big, uh, kind of consequential shift. Remember um, Joe Lieberman versus Ned Lamont uh, in uh, it was a Connecticut Senate race, I think in in 2005. And at that point, I mean, Lamont was the first kind of openly anti-Israel uh, uh, candidate, especially in the um, for for Senate in in a place like uh, like Connecticut. And he was going up against uh, Lieberman, who was a pro-Israel Jewish. Kind of conservative, uh, conservative Democrat, and um, and uh, and uh, he, Lamont won the primary, and Lieberman was forced to uh, to to run and win as an independent. Um, but that's really when you saw the first stirrings, I think. And and following following the uh, the the Lamont primary victory, you saw a lot of far left money get put into um, get put into the the, the sort of anti-Israel cause. Um, uh, and and making that a political viability, you saw the beginnings of uh, of J Street and things like that. George Soros funded, you know, anti-Israel uh, organization, which is kind of masquerading as a pro-Israel organization, um, but is an anti-Israel organization in all but name. Um, and and this has kind of snowballed over the last, um, you know, over the last, uh, you know, roughly roughly two decades or, or decade and a half. And I think now we're at the point where uh, all the energy in the Democratic Party is with is with the far left. Um, you know, the the uh, we have a situation where the donors and the um, and the, the the most vocal grassroots activists are far to the left of not only the American people but also the the kind of traditional Democrat base. So. Um, 
wherever the money and the energy is, that's where the party is going to go. And if they're going to lose, they're going to lose, but, but they're going to keep going in that direction. Uh, and, um, and, and I think we're going to see the same way we see a lot of Reagan Democrats. Um, I think we're going to see and, and have seen a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, Trump Democrats as well. And I think this, plays a, a, this, this is going to play an increasingly large part of, of, uh, of, of what's going on. Um, what's going on politically in this country. I think it's going to be um, only a matter of a very few short years until uh, the Democratic Party is openly hostile towards Israel. Um, they're already openly hostile towards Saudi Arabia, which, you know, they're, they're, they're openly hostile towards Saudi Arabia, and one reason why is their close relationship with Israel. Now, you, um, uh, you, you had a tweet that actually, I think, perfectly summarized the direction of the Democratic Party and, and where the Republican Party's foreign policy priorities are. You had said that the Democratic Party will be the party that supports A, B, and C, and the Republican Party will be the party that supports X, Y, and Z. Can you go a little bit more into that thesis? Yeah, I mean, the, the way I, um, I laid it out was that uh, in the next coming, you know, next coming half decade, we'll see the Democratic Party become uh, 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 become hostile to uh, to Israel, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, UAE, sort of all of the um, all of the American allied Middle Eastern countries. Um, it will em- it will embrace uh, Qatar, Iran, and Turkey, um, and the Republican Party will sort of do the opposite. Uh, and um, and there's a piece that I wrote at the American Mind on kind of you know why this is happening, and I wrote it right before the um, Sort of after the election, but before uh, before the new Congress started this, uh, this 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 past January, and it was just about you know look, we are so far apart as a country in terms of red and blue and the way we see the world, the way we see the role of government and all these things. I mean that's a domestic you know political uh, uh, discussion. But considering we're so far, considering we see the world. In, in two very, very divergent ways between, you know, conservative and liberal in the United States. Shouldn't that also mean that we see our foreign allies and adversaries completely differently? I think that that does. Um, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense, and, and, and we've seen it play out. So as, as time goes on, um, as, as, as time goes on, there will be a, a, a sort of a, a more dramatic shift in terms of um, – in terms of how we see allies and, and adversaries uh, in, in, in the United States. And that's something that we haven't really dealt with since, the, um, since before the Second World War. You know, we had a pretty decent, I mean, even though the, you the, know, the, the Cold War was, uh, was a bit sketchy when it, when it came to, uh, when it came to this in, um, you know, when it came to sort of the far left, um, uh, love for the Soviet Union, um, it was it was it was still completely out of the mainstream. So the last time we had kind of mainstream um, uh, uh, debate over which allies to support and which allies not to support, and 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 sort of the same on adversaries, um, I think it was before the Second World War. And and don't forget, it's this this kind of thing has a long tradition in American history too, because. Uh, shortly after the uh, the founding of the country, 
many folks were split between uh, between people who wanted to support the British and people who wanted to support the French. And you know, this was this was kind of open warfare politically speaking um, in the United States. So it's I, I guess it's it's a, a reversion to maybe the natural state of affairs that didn't that sort of was on holiday throughout uh, you know half of the 20th century. But I think it's coming back, and and I'm not happy about it. I'm just here to report, you know. Well, I think that it's more nuanced when we look at the fissures that exist, not just between Democrats and Republicans and liberals and conservatives, but if we look at the split within the Democratic Party, let's let's look at Israel as sort of the uh, the petri dish, if we will, of how that party is splitting along, not partisan lines, but along ideological lines. As you pointed out, you have the far left and Islamists and self-so-called progressives that are taking the anti-Israel perspective. And in doing so, they align themselves with the agenda of authoritarian regimes. As you pointed out, Qatar, Turkey, Iran, in the non-Israel space, yet those who are anti-Israel light, Venezuela, Cuba, and even Russia and China to a certain extent, not in terms of the governments who they've been uh, vocally opposing because of their so-called foreign influence on the United States, but they have taken a line that is one that is very anti-Israel-U.S. alliance. But then we see two Democratic operatives, one being Mark Melman, a longtime Democratic Party pollster who has formed a new group called the Democratic Majority for Israel, and a second group, which claims to be bipartisan, that just started a 501c4 that was launched yesterday called Pro-Israel America, ostensibly being backed by Joe Lieberman on the Democrat side and Ileana Rose-Layton on the Republican side. But if you look at the individuals who behind, who, who, who's behind it, and, and not that we know who the donors are, but Jeff Mendelson, who is the new executive director of the organization, I think is trying to find candidates that are in the Ilhan Omar district, the Andre Carson district. I don't know if Ocasio-Cortez is someone who can be challenged at the polls considering her rounding defeat of the former Democratic House Minority Caucus head, Joe Connolly, and also on the uh, Omar and Tlaib side of things. But they are drawing lines in the sand on the Israel issue within the Democratic Party. But it's as if, though, the Democrats are undergoing their own sort of Tea Party 2.0 reversion on the far left side that the Republican Party underwent in 2010. With the advent of the Tea Party protests, the Republicans taking control of, of the House and the Senate after the Democratic sweep in 2008. And there's also, you know, I think that we can say this because I know that you've been in the middle of this, a split that's going on within the Republican Party. That's between the uh, – and, and I don't think Trump is, is really the issue. The moniker never Trump is something that I think has lost some value in the last two years as conservatives who have found his uh, personal uh, picadillos uh, repulsive, but they've been able to agree with him on some policy positions. I think Elliot Abrams is the uh, penultimate example of someone who criticized Trump during the election but now serving him as his special envoy to Venezuela, sort of rejoining the camp. But – Focusing on the Democrats, if there is a movement to try to bring them, at least on some foreign policy issues, not back to the center, but back to the center left from the far left, is there hope 
that the party won't go down the path to hell paved with good intentions, but might be able to find bipartisan compromise using the Israel issue as an example, and then extending to mutual animus against Iran again, against Turkey, against Qatar? Are the Democrats having any hope to be able to get back on the mainstream with these issues? Um, I think the answer is decidedly no, unfortunately, um, regardless of what happens. Um, and the Tea Party example that, that you came up with is, is I think, is, is sort of a good way to explain that. So there are a lot of differences between the, the, um, the, the Republican and Democratic parties. And, uh, and you could kind of um, illustrate them best, I think, this way, which is that the, uh, the donor class, the, uh, the, the the folks that um, you know the, the folks that that pay money to allow activists to do their work and and fund think tanks and and different uh, political operations um, in the Democratic Party are to the left of uh, you know or to the left of their base and the money is always pushing the Democrats to the left for the Republicans the money is also to the left of their base, and the Republican donors are almost always fighting with their base, and and that's not a um, you know I mean that's I I don't think that that's a particularly sustainable situation. That's what we see. I mean, this is exactly what you described as the the kind of never Trump versus uh, Trump. You know, I mean, as you said, I don't like that um, that particular uh, 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 moniker either. Um, for a number of reasons, but uh, but it's it's you know Trump has uh, has revealed a um, you know a fundamental disconnect between the the grassroots and uh, and the, uh, the the donor class and you know for all intents and purposes they are of two completely different parties and uh, you know the the Democrats um, I mean that's that's one reason why a lot of Republicans are are upset at at people like uh, like Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and 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 and, and other folks, I mean, immigration is is uh, is the big issue that that kind of uh, that kind of illustrates this uh, this this disconnect. And um, uh, but for the Democrats, uh, the Democrat donor base is you know is is you know frankly completely radicalized. Um, they're the ones funding um, you know AOC and. Um, uh, and, uh, and and Taleb and, and they're the ones funding a lot of these um, these anti-Israel uh, priorities, and um, and eventually I think they'll they'll get what they want. Um, also, it's, it's it's a youth issue too. It's a generational issue. Um, we, we have uh, we we have um, you know already now what three generations, two generations at least, uh, who've been through uh, who've been through. Uh, university uh, far left university indoctrination and uh that's kind of the that's kind of the uh the new normal you've also got another dynamic where it comes to uh to people in uh in you know metropolitan blue cities uh versus people outside of uh outside of these uh these you know metropolitan uh areas and their politics are different and increasingly um democratic party politics are Irrelevant to people outside of those blue areas, um, and so it's it's 
I mean, in a very real sense, it's also a radicalization process. I mean, you, you, you see what goes on on, on cable news and, you know, the, the, average, uh, the average cable news host or guest is just not reflective of the opinions of, um, of, uh, of people in the country, certainly not reflective of people in the middle of the country or, you know, uh, conservative Democrats or anything like that. I mean, this is, this is far less stuff that, that's, uh, that's, that's happening on, um, on a lot of the cable channels, save for Fox every night. So I, I don't think um, I, I don't think it's it's I mean sure it's it's a great uh, it's a great attempt and and I would I would love to be proven wrong here, um, but uh, but I don't think that a political party comes back from uh, from the brink just you know just wakes up one day and says you know what I think we've gone a little too far. I mean, um, I mean, if, I you, if you look, they if you have to be faced with a calamity, if you look at the real politic of how the Republican Party was faced with a calamity, I don't necessarily think it's a calamity, but a uh, exercise in recovering from crisis with the election of Donald Trump. It was seen as a great victory, but there was also a lot of breaths that <laughs> went out that night when the traditional Republican base, at least dealing with foreign policy and national security subjects, was seen as pushed to the wayside. But if we look at the evolution of now, I guess, we have 27 months of governance under President Trump, the initial individuals who are put into office and that have sort of been cycled out for the traditional Republican national security establishment, John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, other individuals at the, uh, the, the, the National uh, Security Council, the State Department, the Defense Department, there has been a course correction where the president has noted that sometimes policies that he wants to pursue because he's convinced by some outside advisors that it may be a good idea are often corrected. The Syria pullout, I think, is the best example. He goes on December 26th after a phone call with Erdogan, president of Turkey, declaring that all U.S. troops will be withdrawn within a certain amount of time. And then there is the resignation of Defense Secretary Mattis, but after deliberations that take place in the National Security Council within the principal committee of the White House and of those who are involved in national security decision-making at the highest levels of government under the president, he makes a commitment to keep between a reported 200 to even 1,000 troops and also to set conditions that his national security advisor then delivers to countries like Turkey, like Israel, Iraq, and through intermediaries through, to, to Syria and to Russia. So you have a policy announcement or, or fiat by Twitter, whatever way we're doing it these days. And then there's a gradual process where as opposed to formulating the policy before you announce it, there's sort of this formulation of, you know, sort of, of doing it on the fly. But I don't really care about how the policy is derived so long as it's executed in a responsible manner. We find the president is flexible when he is uh, politely pointed out to be potentially wrong. But then if you look at them, the Democrat side. You have these statements by Ilhan Omar, not once the, the hip, hip, hypnosis statement where she says that the uh, Israelis must be hypnotizing world leaders using a historical anti-Semitic canard. And then it's all about the Benjamins on Twitter and then identifying APAC and, and these accusations of dual loyalty in interviews. And I think the worst example is her uh, op-ed that comes out in the Washington Post where she takes a very, very plain 
anti-Israel and, and more than that, anti-American ally foreign policy stance in 800 or to, to 1,000 words and then says in some way or another that we have to contrive this to be a normal, acceptable American foreign policy opinion or position. And you have Nancy Pelosi and the House leadership in a position to condemn the issue that is at hand, anti-Semitism by name. But then instead of having a process where the leader stands tall and is willing to rebuke someone in their party for committing a foul against an American minority group, we have a wishy-washy response where they say all hate deserves condemnation. And yet, when the president, and I'm not justifying what he said after the Charlottesville attacks, I think that there's sometimes the president says deplorable, reprehensible statements. But you find that his party is able to offer a course correction that he eventually adopts, as opposed to the Democrats who are on the verge of going more towards the Omar camp, the far left camp, than that of moving back to the center. And I think that illustrates exactly where the Democratic Party is on foreign policy if we use Israel in the Petri dish. Your response? No, I, 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 I agree with that. Um, I, I agree with that, uh, with, with that completely. Um, it, it's, um, I, I think it's just further evidence of, um, of the fact that the, uh, the Democrats cannot condemn uh, this, this um, you know, not only very energetic part of their, uh, of their base, but, um, you know, they, they can't condemn this for, for you know, for, for donor reasons, too. I think that's where you know that's where the money is, and uh, and they have to they have to tread very carefully. Um, I thought uh, uh, Omar's you know statements have been have been completely shameful, uh, and there's no way that someone who is you know someone who is not a person of color would have gotten away with them. Um, I mean we're in a we're in a really sick situation, and I know I mean I'm sure you you agree with me on this, which is like I'm sick of. Um, you know, whenever there's there's a uh, whenever there's an anti-Semitism controversy uh, brewing in the media, it just kind of makes me sick because it it's it's uh, it's it's become like a it's become like a political football. And for the media, you know, on one hand, um, they'll say that uh, that Omar is not an anti-Semite, but you know, Donald Trump is. You know, so it's just it's it's um, anti anti-Semite and uh, has become. Uh, unfortunately, just another word for the left to use, like like racist, like fascist, like white supremacist. It's just it, it's 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 a container with um, you know with uh, empty of meaning, and it just uh, it's it's um, it's used because because it's effective because you know obviously nobody wants to think of themselves as you know racist, white supremacist, anti-Semite, etc. So uh, so the left, I think, very very cynically has um has just started using these things as as uh as epithets to with which to go after its enemies right it's a political uh vocabulary that creates an empty vassal of undermining the value of the true meaning of those words you want to call out a neo-nazi make sure he's a neo-nazi don't undermine the value of the rhetoric that you're using. And I, and I think that, that you couldn't be more on the spot than that. David, we're going to have some final thoughts with you after these messages. 
The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East Studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the Y. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the Y as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the Y. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. We're joined by David Reboy, whose film... Uh, or who's starring in a film, Blood Money, that will be coming out this week uh, around March 22nd or March 23rd on YouTube, available for all of our listeners to view. And David, I just want to conclude our interview this morning asking you, with the tumult which is present in D.C. politics, largely caused by foreign influence, is there one or two messages or rays of hope that you can share with our listeners of what might be the silver lining of this crisis in foreign countries trying to manipulate our democratic process? Well, I think the best way to, uh, to deal with it is through sunlight, you know, as they say, which is the best disinfectant. Uh, the more people that are kind of hip to this, uh, this, this thing that's going on is, uh, is, uh, is, is to the better. And I think a lot of people should see the film. It comes out uh, uh, on; it'll be out on YouTube uh, later this this week, called Blood Money. Uh, you can find the trailer right now. It's uh, it's it's a wonderfully made film, and it uh, it, it discusses you know a, a subject that uh, that pretty much everybody in the mainstream media is afraid to touch, which is uh, which is Qatari influence. Um, and information operations specifically, you know, what, what does that mean? What's an information operation? Well, it's, it's how you advance your, uh, your sort of national security priorities, your, your national interests through the controlled release of information. You know, what, what can you get people to talk about? And then once you get people to, to, to talk about the, that subject, you sort of push them in a direction to take action. So we saw this perfectly, perfectly when it came to uh, to uh, Jamal Khashoggi, and uh, and the murder of Khashoggi was used as a weapon against Saudi Arabia, you know, specific, specifically against the Yemen war. 
So there's there's so I mean at the end of the day there's always a sort of um, there's always a sort of policy uh, uh, policy outcome that um, that these these foreign countries want to um, want to uh, want to ensure, and then once um, you know and you get there by you know through a careful manipulation of the media and think tanks and lobbyists and and all that stuff. So I think I think when people see the film. Uh, hopefully they will come away with an awareness of how this dynamic works and they'll start to question uh, they'll start to question articles that come out and uh, and you know some think tank reports and say hold on what is what is this person what is this journalist or this expert trying to get me to believe and who are the interests that are advanced by um, by this particular story or this report or this particular narrative and uh, and I think I think the American people uh, who are politically engaged are already hip to this. Like they already understand this dynamic when it comes to Republican versus Democrats. Um, they understand that you know right before an election, when um, when uh, uh, you know Reuters or or, or another um, another left-leaning news agency decides to spike a story that is unhelpful to Beto O'Rourke before his election. Um, uh, and wait until afterwards when uh, when uh, when it comes out. Um, they they understand how this process works, but but when they see it on a uh, on a global level, I think um, I think we'll be able to make some headway, and we'll be able to at least have some more discerning. Uh, discerning customers of, uh, of information. David Reboy, Blood Money, coming out this week. I encourage everyone to watch it. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And that wraps it up for this week on Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. Thanks to Delaney Janchik, our production assistant, Lisa Barbunas, our director of communications, and all of our listeners for joining us. We hope you can join us next week after APAC here in Philadelphia Talk Radio, where the Middle East is a little bit more clearly understood. I'm Greg Roman signing off.